Welcome to the MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference podcast presented by ESPN and 42 Analytics. This is Jessica Gelman, who along with Daryl Morey co-founded and chair the conference with a fantastic group of MIT Sloan students each year. Thanks for listening and enjoy. Good afternoon and welcome and hope you're enjoying the 2020 Sloan Sports Analytics Conference. My name is Matt Kilby. I'm a first year MBA student at MIT Sloan. It is my pleasure to introduce our next panel, Defending the Pass, brought to you by ESPN. Today, our panelists are Kevin Mears, former director of research at the Cleveland Browns, Evan Kaplan, research specialist, ESPN, Brian Burke, senior analytics specialist, ESPN, Dominique Foxworth, former player, senior writer at the Undefeated. The panel will be moderated by Brian McDonald, Director of Sports Analytics, ESPN. Coward. <laughs> Dominique is also the king of awesomeness. <laughs> the panel today will be 45 minutes long, followed by 10 minutes of Q&A. If you have a question, please use Twitter with the hashtag Defending the Pass. And with that, I'll pass it off to Brian. Thank you. All right. Thank you. And thank you all for coming and joining us for this discussion. And I, I for one, and, uh, am uh, very honored to be sharing the stage with such royalty, royalty here, the king of awesomeness. So that was the official title that he gave us uh, to pass along to the Sloan Conference or organizers. King of awesomeness, comma, uh, writer for the undefeated. Facts so. are facts. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, so today we're going to be talking about um, how player tracking data can be used um, as far as analyzing how players are, how players perform at defending the pass, and um, this is something that was very difficult to do uh, prior to player tracking data becoming available. Um, you, know, you can get certain things from play-by-play -play data um, in football, um, but you can't. I mean, it's only for a couple players. Maybe you get information about a couple of players, and it's usually offensive players. And um, you know, without all 22 video. Um, even if you wanted to manually track your own uh, and collect your own data, it would be difficult without the all 22 data, especially for anything involving defensive backs, because a lot of times they're not even showing on the, on the broadcast feed. So, so player tracking data, though, has opened up um, the door, um, and uh, you know, it's sort of allowed for countless new questions to be asked and possibly answered uh, using data. So, so that's what we're going to focus on here in this panel, and uh, most of the time will be spent talking about something that sort of hasn't been done, which is coming up uh, with a metric for uh, defensive backs, um, and we'll have some interactivity with the audience. But first thing we wanted to do was start with some of the things that we have done um, at ESPN. Um, and uh, just to give an example of like what does it look like, what does the end result look like, and we'll talk about the process uh, by which we kind of came up with those metrics. So uh, we have a, a couple examples here. We have a short two-minute video that sort of uh, uh, displays some of the uh, some of the work that we've done. So if we could. Uh this is a all-out blitz. It's a zero blitz. The reason that he's able to hold it for 3.9 seconds is because he makes the defender miss. Look, he has been doubled on every pass rush tonight. I doubled him every play, not just every pass rush. He's the only player in the NFL who's been double teamed over 500 times since the start of last season. Just look. One right. moment, please. We're experiencing technical difficulties. We'll restore to the video as soon as we've got it. 
Awesomeness. I feel like it's my responsibility to be awesome right now in this moment because <laughs> nothing's happening. I'm sure the video was fantastic. I haven't seen it. I think the mics are working again. Yeah. So, so why don't we um, why don't we move on a little bit and come back to that? And um, so uh, we'll see those examples in a second. But one of the nice things about um, sort of what we've been able to do at ESPN, and by we I mean mostly other people. I've only been there eight months. So, but we. The, the royal we, I guess. Um, uh, you, you know, one of the nice things is that um, sort of Brian and Dominique working together. So um, they, it's sort of like the, the perfect situation where Brian is uh, an analytics expert and has uh, very good knowledge of the game. Uh, Dominique is uh, someone who is an expert of the game and has a lot of uh, quantitative knowledge. He's quantitative, quantitatively savvy and um, can understand things from that perspective. And uh, they've been able to work together on uh, developing some of these metrics. So just wanted to talk a little bit about, if you could, um, sort of how did that collaboration start? Um, and what kinds of things did you guys talk about? And what did, you, what did each of you learn um, from those conversations? I'll start. Um, well, with, with player tracking data, um, we, you need more and more kind of X and O, like inside the game knowledge, subject matter expertise, domain knowledge. Um, so when we were doing things like um, sort of in-game decision analysis and those sorts of big, kind of big picture analytics for the sport of football, you didn't really need to know the difference between a Tampa two and a cover two. But once you get down to uh, player tracking data, basically what you're trying to do is teach a computer to watch film in, in a smart way. That, that's really what you're trying to do. And in order to watch film smartly, you really have to understand the game at a much, much deeper level, a, a level I, I, I certainly uh, didn't have before, and I'm still struggling to, to get there. Uh, so the, the, the marriage of the, the analytics and subject matter expertise uh, is critical in exploiting player tracking data. And I think uh, you know, it's just uh, fortunate that uh, I work outside of DC and Dominique is, is uh, headquartered in our, in our DC uh, office and studios. So uh, we would bump into each other frequently and I, was just, I would just grab onto him for you know, every little drop of information I could squeeze out of him. And, and he, he's been awesome. He's uh, been very patient with me and, and taught, me, taught me a lot. Yeah, it was a, real, it was a lot of fun. And I think you were kind of uh, confused by how much I wanted to talk about those things. But it's, it's ideas that, <laughs> because I, I, I think that, uh, Football players in general, and anyone who has an area of expertise, when someone from the outside comes in with a different level of expertise, and, and even if they don't purport themselves as being uh, able to help you necessarily, they, they come in with the idea that they're going to help. And the assumption, I think, for most people is to kind of be like, well, you're new to this, you don't understand it. But I, I had the good fortune of having my like experience outside of football and recognize that there are a lot of smart people and a lot of smart uh, practices that are outside of the sport that can be applied to the sport. So when I was thinking about these things um, before I joined ESPN, I had uh, delusions that some of these things were possible. And then I met Brian. I was like, oh, he's already way ahead, way ahead of where I wanted to, to take the film study and, and being able to take it to the next step. And he's obviously going to be very humble and say that he's still trying to figure so, those things out. But I do remember one of the things that was most enticing about working with you was when I was trying to explain to you the simple stuff, like you understood that because you had put in the time to understand the, uh, the base level and we could have a conversation 
and I could use some of the language that you're comfortable with, you could use language that I was comfortable with, and I think it really helped us to move forward quite quickly, and it's helped me, honestly, with uh, making, saving time and preparing for TV shows, preparing for writing something, is you can use that data so much more quickly, because right now what the data does, or what the uh, machine learning software that you use, it does a lot of, the example you used was watching film, it does the things that I did when I was a player, it just does it a lot faster and more efficiently, and it's been super helpful. Brian, we do have that clip available for you now. Okay, let's see it. This is a all-out blitz. It's a zero blitz. The reason that he's able to hold it for 3.9 seconds is because he makes the defender miss. <laughs> Look, he has been doubled on every pass rush tonight. I doubled him every play, not just every pass rush. He's the only player in the NFL who's been double teamed over 500 times since the start of last season. Just look at this heat map and how skewed it is to the right-hand side. And Adams had virtually no success when over there. He caught two quick passes on three targets. But by and large, when he started on the right, Rodgers looked elsewhere. There's a lot of red there, which isn't what you want to see if you're the Packers. And he had just a 17.6% chance of making that, according to next-gen stats. Tannehill's expected completion percentage is only 63%, and it's plus 10% completion percentage above expected. That's Michael Thomas. When you consider the fact that this guy has caught 84% of his targets so far this year, which is 15% above expectation, that's number one in the NFL. That's just ridiculous. Bradley Roby at the top of your screen is sitting outside waiting for this out route. He's waiting for it. That's why the catch probability on this on this route is 40%. No quarterback, excuse me, threw more touchdowns against zone coverage than Patrick Mahomes. And no quarterback had a higher raw QBR. Not only that, but Mahomes was top 10 in pass yards, yards per attempt, and completion percentage as well. The reality is if they're going to play that zone, he's the best guy moving people with his eyes. Yeah. And you have the best coach in the NFL of taking all three, four guys of their offense and flooding that zone to make defenders wrong. In 2.2 seconds, his chips are past his. That's the measurement right there, and that's how they get under two and a half seconds, the average time to pass the ball for a quarterback in the NFL. We want to take you a little bit deeper on this. According to our pass rush metrics powered by NFL Next Gen, Mac has the third highest win rate in the NFL. No one drops dimes better than Russell Wilson. He just puts the perfect amount of air on the football. He just knows how to get it to him in the right trajectory for however many yards his receiver is. He's mastered that. When we look at our pass rushing numbers, what Watt was doing is he was getting double teamed at a huge rate. So look at the chart here. On the, on the horizontal axis, we're looking at the double team rate for edge defenders. And then the, the vertical axis is their pass rush win rate, the rate at which they beat their defender within two and a half seconds. Watt was getting double teamed. All right. Appreciated the Browns touchdown. Get him there. <laughs> <laughs> so speaking of the Browns, smooth transition to asking you a question. So, um, so, uh, so when you were with the Browns, I mean, what kinds of collaboration um, sort of went on uh, inside there in the front office? Was it similar to kind of what you just heard with Brian and Dominique, or how was it similar and different? Sure. I'd say that what uh, Brian and Dominique are describing is basically the goal 
and that it was incumbent on everyone in the front office to kind of make that happen. And uh, I'd say I had, I, we had that with varying success. There were some people who were incredibly generous with their time and their energy and uh, teaching me a lot about the game. A lot of scouts that let me bug them with questions all the time and let me sit in their rooms while they were breaking down film and ask them what they were seeing so that I could try to kind of up my football IQ. Um, but then there were also people who were not as interested in answering my questions, uh, which is perfectly reasonable, but um, there's, the goal is to build a partnership so that, um, one, your own football IQ is high enough that you can do this work on your own because you can't be bothering someone else all the time. They have their own job. Um, but then when you do need like their next level of expertise, you have someone that you can go to to talk through a really complex problem that you need to work through. Yeah, and Evan, uh, you have uh, collaborated with Brian and other folks at ESPN, um, you know, just in the area of this next-gen SATS data. Um, can you just talk a little bit about those collaborations? Sure. Uh, it, it's really a three-step process uh, from my perspective. So at the start, it's, it's getting with Brian and the rest of his team, uh, giving them feedback as they're coming up with all these metrics. Uh, recently did that when Brian developed his route tree classification this past season, just talking about how we best define and, and label those terms so that our fans can understand them. Um, and then after I'm coming, and then after I'm understanding and, and figuring out the best stories to tell with that data, uh, it's going back and diving into the storylines that are going on around the league, whether it's that week's games or some other storyline. And then finally, the third uh, step, which is really the most important, is I'm having one-on-one -on -one meetings with our analysts on Sunday NFL Countdown, Monday Night Countdown, Steve Young, Randy Moss, Rex Ryan, Matt Hasselbeck, et cetera, and we're taking the data that we have on our end and marrying it with what they're observing and the film breakdown that they see, and we're seeing where there's a match. And that's really the, the best part where everything kind of comes together. One specific example was um, before the Chiefs-Lions game this past season, Teddy Bruschi wanted to do a breakdown looking at the Lions defense, which head coach Matt Patricia came from the Patriots system, and look back at the 2018 AFC Championship game where he thought that the Patriots probably played man on a, on a majority of snaps against Mahomes and were able to slow him down in the first half. Now in the past, he certainly could have generally made that point, but thanks to what Brian does with his team and the fact that we had our past coverage metrics, we were able to tell that the Patriots, in fact, played man defense on 100% of Mahomes' dropbacks in the first half of that game. That was the only team to play man on 100% of dropbacks in the first half all season. Teddy's able to come up with a breakdown tape. We're able to add that added context that is really just making our fans a lot smarter. That's, for me at least, that was, was the best part of that reel, and that speaks to the job that you do. Is it's almost indistinguishable that right. the stuff is in there unless right. you're watching for it. Exactly. Like the, the coverage doesn't seem any different. It just happens to be a lot smarter and, we, and no one really knows why. And that's mm -hmm. what I think is difficult for me as someone who understands the game but is also super um, into this stuff. Like I'll find little morsels of stats or something that I think is, is interesting and I'll just want to go in, in, on TV or just write that particular stat and like understanding that no one else really cares about the stat. They want to know the story. Like they want to know why this receiver is not making any plays or why this, um, this team struggled on third down. And I can use uh, one of the really interesting things that we found or I, I like to look up is um, on the spreadsheets is like 
crossing motion, someone who runs with motion with uh, whether the defense is in zone or not, because normally that's an indicator of man to man. And I noticed in the last couple of years, a lot more often than I had ever seen, we didn't even coach that when I was playing, that people would motion across. There was one play for the, the Colts in the playoffs a couple of years ago where Darius Leonard, the inside linebacker, motioned with a running back to outside and ended up playing deep third as a corner on outside, which led to an interception underneath, which is fascinating to me, but I just put all you guys to sleep because it's just like a bunch of like gibberish. But understanding how to take that and then turn that into a little like a little morsel on TV that is bite sized and it just saves so much time and it's so impressive. I, I appreciate I know how difficult that is, so when I see that, I think about how valuable you are to those guys and wonder why you never call me. <laughs> I think the fans are smarter now, yeah, too. So yeah, they can appreciate analysis absolutely. like that that maybe 10, 20 years ago, uh, they, they, you know, wouldn't. It's, it's, it's nice that the fans are smarter, but it's also, like, frustrating sometimes because not everyone who covers the game is as smart as you would like them to be. I, I have many group texts <laughs> with my uh, analysts and, and player friends where – especially with my, my former cornerbacks. Everybody on TV always wants to blame the corners and they, they never know any better. <laughs> I, I need that everyone on TV needs to understand cover two. Just simple, it's a simple coverage. Understand cover two, guy catches a go on cover two. It's not the corner's fault, that's all, sorry. <laughs> I'll get off my soapbox. Good to know, good to know. Good yep. for everyone here to know too. Uh, write it down. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it's interesting. So I think like, you know, sort of the process that you guys just described uh, is something like what Dean Oliver has said in the past, one of the guiding principles of sports analytics, which is words into numbers into words. And uh, sort of, we were talking before, I kind of, you know, it, as a former professor, the thing that came to mind for me was it's like, you basically just described the data science process, the entire process, formulating a question, getting data, building some models, getting some results, and then figuring out how to communicate those results to the audience, and how basically all of those steps involve some sort of collaboration and some sort of iteration. So that's the, exactly the kind of thing, it's exactly the kind of model that you, you would try to teach students about the data science process. but. Um, so let's move on here to um, our, our next topic. And um, you know, if you, you may have noticed in the, the, the clips that we showed earlier that there was nothing about individual pass performance uh, as far as uh, defensive backs and defending the pass. And so that's what we're going to talk about now. And so we're kind of going to pretend that we were asked by a GM or someone at ESPN or you know, maybe our boss, Jeff Bennett, um, hey, we need a, uh, a way to quantify pass coverage for individuals. We need a way to determine how defensive backs are contributing to the team's performance in terms of defending the pass, and, so, and how do we do that. So let's, um, let's break it down a little bit. We're going to start with uh, just press coverage, and we're going to start by showing a few clips here. And, uh, and Dominique, and there's going to be some clips of Richard Sherman, uh, in press coverage, and Dominique's going to talk through some of the things that Sherman does well on the plays, um, what he doesn't do well, and, uh, and then we'll bring it back to the panel here. All right. That's Sherman up top right there. And I think when you're in press coverage, the most important thing, he keeps his leverage on that spot, and that's why he makes that play there. But keep your leverage is important, but you want to win at the line. If you get up close and you lose, you're in trouble right off the bat. And again, he doesn't necessarily win at the, at the line necessarily, but he understands where his help is, and he, based on the split of that receiver, keeps himself in good position. The uh, same play. 
and this is it with the dots. I love the dots. <laughs> <laughs> but understanding that um, you can narrow down what plays you're going to get, and I think the, the data helps us to do that by based on splits, down and distance, and all that stuff. I think Richard Sherman, I mean, it's, it's kind of a cliche at this point because people say it so much about him. He's one of the smartest players, and I've seen him be able to uh, eliminate routes, and I see him thinking through the process, and lots of players are able to do this. Uh, they think through the process of the play, and you can see once they eliminate routes. You see it on, I don't know how many more clips we have of Richard, but I know some of the other clips right here. And this is a good win. I think he gives up the, the, uh, the pass here. It happens, but it's a good win. You see how long he keeps him at the line of scrimmage. He forces him to redirect. He buys time, and you can't win them all, as they say. Uh, they get paid too. When I was in school, you say they're on scholarship too, but sometimes you lose again. You lose one or two. Richard loses this one, but it's through no fault of his own necessarily. He keeps his leverage. He buys time. He forces him to redirect twice in the route, right there and then right there again. Can we go into the next one? And this one, it's, it's yeah, that's a fade. That's a tough one. It's, he does a good job of getting his hands on him. Richard is not the fastest guy ever, so that's a tough spot to be in. The ball doesn't come his direction, but he's in good position in, in this spot. You want to get him off the line. You want to eliminate, you want to get him as close to the sideline as possible. That's something that he does well in that situation. All right, to the next one. Okay, this is incredible. I don't know what he knew about this play, but this is what I talk about when you say you can eliminate routes. I'm not sure why, if it was in film study, but you can see once he gets a hand on him at, at the front, and the guy gets past him a little bit, I would panic. Any normal corner in that situation would probably panic and start running deep. But there's something about this that Richard's eyes are in the backfield. He kind of doesn't even care if he goes deep. I think he knows because of maybe the inside release. That was probably it because most of the time the deep routes, they like to do outside release. Something about the film study in this week allowed him to be more aggressive at the line. And then you see right there, there's no panic. He's just waiting. All right, next one. Uh... Yeah, that's just, that's called losing at the line. <laughs> I mean, it, it happens to everybody. When you're going to be up there and uh, you have a speedy guy like that, you're not going to win them all. He gets back in position. And I think one of the, the good things about having the reputation that Richard Sherman has is even when you lose at the line, the quarterback has decided before they play that he's not even going to come at you. So I think that's what happened there. And the, the route concept made it so he was not the, the number one uh, possibility right there. That guy is just running off the clear. But again, he's committed on that, that uh, particular play to have outside leverage. So you see that jab step? That's why he loses, because he's so committed to outside leverage that that jab step forces him to fully commit and spin his hips. Is that it? Is that all of them? Yep, that's, uh, <laughs> that's it for now. So let's bring it back to the panel and uh, just talk about how we might be able to quantify these, some of these kinds of things that Dominique was talking about. He's talking about holding guys at the line, pushing them to the sideline and so on. So like, how can we quantify some of these things? Um, you know, maybe what kinds of models would need to be used? Um, how would we come up with a metric that we could communicate to fans uh, as far as uh, player performance in these areas? Uh, discuss amongst yourselves. <laughs> uh, so first thing I would look for is, okay, wh which one of these plays are press coverage and which ones aren't? And that's, that's a fairly easy thing to do with the player tracking. So we know the, you know, the, the events First of all, we should say that NextGen Stats and Zebra, uh, the league who, who uh, are providers of these, uh, the tracking data, do an incredible job. Uh, the, the technology involved must, is amazing. The, uh, the data is super clean, and if the events are tagged. So if, if 
your, your data science person. You know what that means? Like, uh, we know when the snap happened, we don't have to figure that out for ourselves. We know when the pass is released, we don't have to figure that out for ourselves. So just get that out of the way. They deserve a lot of credit. Um, the, uh, so we, we know when the snap happens, and we can just you know, look at the proximity of the cornerbacks to, to the wide, wide outs, and uh, you know, given some sort of arbitrary cutoff, say if he's this close, uh, to the line of scrimmage that's going to be press coverage or not. I mean, that would be the very first thing we do. Um, and then after that, we would, you know, I'd talk to Dominique, say, what, what, defines, right. what defines a win? What defines a loss? So before we even get to that, my first concern would be whether it's press or bail. And um, so bail technique is like a cover three normally, and sometimes man coverage, you get up there and press, and at the snap of the ball, you're not interested in getting your hands on. You just turn your hips, open your hips to the quarterback, and you get depth. So that will be something that I would certainly tell you is like just because they're at the line, at the snap of the ball, doesn't mean that it's press coverage. So like proximity, you know, point yeah. two seconds after the snap, yeah, point five seconds. Yeah, so that's it's like yeah. the, the that's how square how their shoulders are at that yeah. point and, and that sort of stuff. Yeah. And then it will be uh, how long you keep them at the line of scrimmage and how, and one of the things that they coach us. When, or they used to coach me when you're at the line of scrimmage is to try to keep your body square because as we saw in that last clip, clip when Richard got beat, he opened his hips to the outside. And once you open your hips one way or the other, if the quarterback, I mean, if the receiver goes the other way, then you're done. Yeah, that's one thing. There, there are limitations to the, the tracking data too. So, you know, we don't have hip position, unfortunately. Well, but, I mean, the, yeah. you do have orientation. We have the shoulders. That's the same yeah. sort of thing, right? So there, there are trade-offs so we can, you know, ultimately, an expert watching film is going to be able to do this in a, in a richer way than we can. But but we can do this at, at a scale and scope that that it would take a you know a human, and it's going to be purely objective too. Like it, one set of rules is going to apply to every single player, not just you know, no no, no favorites or biases. Yeah, going back to the kind of overall question, when you're asked for such a big question like how do we evaluate a player in pass defense, so it's a really like high level question. One way that I like to at least start to attack something like that is to break it down into a series of smaller questions that we can actually try to answer. So once we've defined, like, okay, this is what presses and this is what presses after the snap, like, let's think of a few different small metrics that we can com compute relatively quickly that we can then build on as we get into some more intense kind of models. So something like exactly what you're saying, like how much is a player um, disrupting a guy's route, how many yards is he off of where we expected him to go, or how long is it taking this receiver to get like three yards downfield would be like a couple of things that immediately jump to mind. Uh, for evaluating how good a guy is in press. Right, it's almost like you're developing a press coverage win rate yeah. rather than, right. than looking at the entire scope of it. If you're just focusing on that press coverage and then we would develop whatever time makes sense between Brian and Dominique figuring that out, how long the defender is within X yards of the, of the receiver. Right, and it wouldn't be just distance, we would do velocities as well. So you could be, you know, it's, the cornerback could be very close in proximity to the receiver, but losing ground. He could be being mm -hmm. beat. So what, what, what's the saying? Like if you're, if you're even, you're leaving? Right? That's, that is a saying for right. slow cornerbacks. <laughs> I'm not one of those, so I've never heard that in my life. Yeah, so, so you, could be, you could be right next, you know, just right up against, you know, zero distance away, but then still, still kind of lose that, lose that uh, play, I guess. I, I get excited whenever we are, start talking about these things, and I don't want to take us too deep into this rabbit hole, but I do think that it's important to understand the coverage in this also, because that matters with um, your leverage. And oftentimes the corner will 
align where his leverage is. So you think about two man, which is two deep safeties with man coverage underneath. At that point, you need to win inside. No matter how long you keep him at the line of scrimmage, if you lose the guy inside, that is bad coverage in that particular situation. But understanding all that stuff and how it works into, I think it makes it more helpful for a particular team because they know their rules. But by and large, all the rules are kind of the same. Coverages are pretty universal. There's some unique tweaks from game plan to game plan, but you can understand. And I think it's another way to use it in in uh, reroutes. So in cover two or in any sort of zone coverage, it's important to get reroutes because that buys your safety's time uh, if they're going to run four verticals on them. If you have a guy who's really laterally quick but not fast, a great thing to, to test there is how long he can keep the lot, guy on the line of scrimmage that buys your safety time, buys your safety's time, and allows your rush to get home. And all that stuff is interconnected. Dominique, I'm sure this didn't never applied to you, but of course, uh, <laughs> uh, you know there may be times where a corner is supposed to be playing press, um, but may actually back off of that if he's actually not feeling maybe so hot that day or is worried about getting burned by this guy. Um, Brian, I guess, like, do you think that, or how would we, as kind of the data people, try to build that into a metric talking about press? That's a, yeah, that's a tough question. Like, what we would ultimately to be able to do that, I think we'd have to be on the inside. We'd need to be inside the building, as we say. And as kind of neutral outside observers, even at ESPN, we don't know what the play was supposed to be. We have clues, like I've learned from Dominique, like, hey, the, you can rule out a whole bunch of different pass route possibilities because of the other concepts that are, what the other routes, the other receivers are, are uh, reading, or, or the, the number of is it a three-step or seven-step drop? You know, we can rule certain things out. So uh, we, can, we can have an idea, we can have a clue, but in, you don't ever know exactly what he was supposed to do. And so, uh, yeah, we'll get to mind reading, I guess, down the road. We'll have some <laughs> sensors and helmets eventually, I'm sure. Yeah, and one of the things we wanted to talk about and to touch on was uh, uh, coverage responsibility, which is our next topic. And uh, we're going to have a Twitter poll in a, in a few moments, so get your phones and laptops ready. Um, but, you know, one thing that we had talked about is if you're going to assign, if you're going to measure the ability of a defensive back in, in terms of how he's helping his team, um, you need to know who is responsible for doing what if you're going to appropriately assign credit and blame for different plays that happen. And so, um, so that's the sort of the idea of when we, we kind of talk about coverage responsibility. And uh, we have a clip here, um, and we're going to have a little audience poll. And you guys are going to take a look at this clip and um, see who you think um, deserves the response. Uh, who, who is responsible for the open man here at the uh, at the bottom of the screen? Uh, so it's that on the left there, not the bottom of the screen. My apologies. Corner. Don't we have it live too? Or we don't. Uh, we, yeah, we do. Uh, we, we can show that in a second uh, here. Um, but this has the numbers on it, and I think uh, they're going to have to vote with the numbers. Got it. So, um, so we'll leave that up there. But uh, just while everyone's voting, um, how important is this idea of like determining who's responsible for coverage? Uh, 
how difficult it is it to determine. I mean, I know there have been some strides in basketball. Uh, it's the same, same kind of idea when you're talking about defense in basketball. If you're going to assign credit and blame to players, you've got to know who's responsible for doing what. So uh, how could we start to um, you know, make some progress in football? I mean, it's incredibly important because uh, that's, it decides reputations of players. It decides how much guys are getting paid. It decides the, the schemes that defenses can rely on going forward. So I think there are a few things more important than being able to do that. And I think it, it turned out to be, at least when we're going through it, it seemed to be easier than I, than I thought. There's some things that change from scheme to scheme, but by and large, there are a few basic coverages that don't necessarily change and you understand one of the, the interesting things or the things that makes it easier is you know what someone's supposed to do because, and you know who's wrong because everyone else is doing something right <laughs> and you recognize where the holes are and you recognize, so in certain coverages, uh, cover two I mentioned earlier, you see a guy, a receiver run past the cornerback, the cornerback's responsibility is the flat, receiver runs past him, he's no longer his responsibility. If the safety is late getting over, and they catch the touchdown or they catch a deep pass, then it's not necessarily the corner's fault. The same thing is true if they're underneath zone because the reason why you can play a deep zone is because the underneath zone is forcing the quarterback to put air on the ball, which then gives you time to break up and, and break up the ball. So there are some times where the guy who makes the tackle is the guy that gets blamed, but it's not necessarily that person's responsibility. And I think, yeah, I think Brian's become smart enough to be able to, to um, decipher those things now. Uh, hopefully, but <clears throat> yeah, and, and that seems like a pretty standard play pass concept too. So, yeah. you know, number two receiver, right? You num we number from, these are all the great things I've been learning. So you number from outside in, one, two, three receiver. Number two receiver is kind of the slot receiver in this situation. He runs this deep, kind of deep out corner thing. Mm -hmm. And uh, the, uh, the number one receiver carries that cornerback. It's like a deep post on kind a go of. And yeah, or just deep and uh, I suppose Cornerback's supposed to hand him off to the safety, the seam off to the safety, and then go. I don't know. We'll see when we get to the Twitter poll. <laughs> <laughs> well, well we have the uh, results of the Twitter poll, speaking of that. Um, so 30% of people said it was number 54. Maybe we can put that uh, dot animation up there um, again. And I can't read the numbers from here. Yeah, 54, 54. is the linebacker right there. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And 46% uh, of people said number 20. Yeah, 20 is the corner. I vote for 20. And 24% uh, said number 27. The safety. No. Yeah. Okay. So most people voted for number 20. And uh, you're saying you agree with that? Got a smart crowd, I think. I mean, it looks like cover three. And uh, I would love for that linebacker to get more depth to put some air on it. But it seems like the corner is playing man coverage. Like, I wouldn't press in this situation with the splits being as close as they are. And he's pressing and runs all the way across like he thinks it's man coverage. If he's going to get up there, especially with um, you're responsible for the number two receiver also on a vertical and cover three, I would, if I was up that close, I would bail or I would get off so that you could see that. And I would say that it is in this one instance, it's the corner's fault. <laughs> so, do, you, do you guys uh, agree so how with Dominique? To, like, uh, well, Analytically think, speaking, how would we be able to determine that, Brian? If, if Dominique's saying, if, if this is kind of a one-off type thing, where in this one instance it would be the corner's fault, but it's not necessarily on a universal plane. Well, I, 
I don't know if we can answer the, right. that completely right now, but I, we know some of the steps we'd have to do along the way. Like, so some of the things we've already done, like so the, the coverage identification, we've, we've got that uh, pr pretty well in hand. Um, pretty sure this play would come up as a cover three. Right. Yeah. Uh, and then, so we also need to define the roles for each defender within the cover three. So who's the hook defender, you know, who's the flat defender, you know, who's, who the deep three are supposed to be. Um, and, and we can do that, We've already, we, we can do that pretty well. And then you would also need to sort of identify the routes, which we, we just sort of completed. Um, and that the, the combination of that, that information, I think would kind of tell you, okay, who, who should have uh, responsibility for, for each route. It's really cool that um, kind of the algorithm can tell that um, our corner here uh, probably did the wrong thing. Uh, and kind of when you're thinking, this should look like cover three. Like the corner should be taking like that mm -hmm. back third. Um, and he's not. And so it's interesting to think about like what the, uh, Kind of like what that delta looks like in the output of the model from where he should be uh, versus where he actually is, and being able to parse out like, yeah, we think that this corner is wrong partly because the error of where he is versus where he should be is so high. Like, I don't think he should be pressing. Yeah, that's that was that, the first thing, thing that jumped out at me. He he, does, he can't see the the number two receiver going vertical, and so if he had seen the number two receiver kind of carrying vertical past five yards, these are I've, this is all I learned from Dominique. Uh, then he's got a he's he's got joint responsibility for right. both those verticals. Right. Do you guys think that the kind of who the player is matters here? I yeah. believe so, this is Ted Ginn. Yeah, that's what that's came to my mind. Ted Ginn. Uh, I I we I've been a part of teams where you would there's a receiver, say Randy Moss, that they're like, all right, no matter what the coverage is, you are with him. If you if he goes into a zone, you stay with him. It doesn't matter. You'll get help. And I, I don't think that Ted Ginn is that disrespect to Ted Ginn. I would think that he's not that caliber of receiver that would require that in that situation. But I do think that that's where it comes into play. But the knowing that there are three backers and four defensive backs and they're all playing cover three a certain way, the coverages would adjust some if there was some sort of uh, unique coverage, you know? And that's what I would look for. I would ask Brian to help look for is like, if everyone is exactly where they're supposed to be in cover three, except for this one person, then chances are that he's not doing what he's supposed to be doing. Yeah. But on a team level, you don't have that problem because you know what everyone's responsibility is. Yeah. The, the play design, the other thing that's remarkable is it seems to me that the whole play concept is just a big gamble on exactly this happening. Right. Like mm -hmm. this, this was the idea, this is right. like the perfect storm for you know, this coverage, that mistake by that cornerback, and, you know, big, big chunk gain. Yeah. Yeah, that is a cover three. That's a, that's a, cover, a, um, a pass concept that's meant to attack the cover three. The reason why I said the linebacker, I would love to see him get more depth, is the, they're missing a flat, someone running into the flat to pull the linebacker down, and it doesn't seem like they have that immediately. So uh, most underneath zone drops are, our coach to get depth until the ball brings you down. So even if the corner stayed in his spot, it, he may not have been able to make this play, but he definitely is going to get a zero on his grade for, for this particular play. All right, so let's move along to our third topic that we wanted to talk about. And actually, um, 
You guys have sort of touched on it a little bit, just the idea of um, the defenders having to make judgment calls in certain situations. And uh, so our third topic was actually anticipation. And so we have a couple clips uh, on that coming up here. Let's see. Um, and so, if Dominique, if you could sure. just sort of talk through what so you see here. First of all, this is Tyron Matthew. There he is working over. He knows what the play is before the play happens. And that's part of being a cornerback that's, or a defensive back. In this situation, by that formation, he knows what the play is. He's anticipating the play, and he is baiting Phillip Rivers in this point. You see, he shows Phillip Rivers that he's taken away that first kind of over concept, but he knows he's going to that next concept. And it's all about film preparation. You have to know this before the play happens. There are some guys who are Actually, there aren't very many guys. I think Champ Bailey is one of the only guys I've ever played with who, like, it didn't matter. He could go out there and not do any film study and just, because he was a better athlete, shut down the receiver. But most guys, you have to kind of know what's coming because the receivers are as good at athletes as we are. So if we don't know what's coming and they know what's coming and the quarterback knows what's coming, you can't win. So that's just a way, again, of Tyron Matthews' safety showing there to force that throw and take it away, something that I played with, with Ed Reed. He did... Like he's all the way to the Hall of Fame doing that same thing. Do we got another one? One more. Yeah, this is another, for, another one from him that I love. Because of the splits of those receivers. So this is man coverage. And you see him cut his man loose. Because the receivers are close in the down and distance, he's anticipating this crossing route right here. And again, this is man coverage. The quarterback thinks that, this, that Tyron Matthews is going to have to run with that guy. And he just disregards that because he knows what's coming. He's able to anticipate because of their formation and because of his film study and get a big turnover right there. And everyone's going to be mad at Derek Carr because he threw that interception. But to be fair, I mean, Tom Brady, Peyton Manning, Aaron Rodgers, they all would have thrown this same interception because every single indication right there. And again, that's what made Ed Reed so great. One of the times I was playing with him, we're in cover two, which means he has deep halves and he stole a slant. And it's in part because he knew that the quarterback knew we were in cover two. So he knew that the quarterback wasn't going to go deep. And he saw two by two, quarterback under center. That means you're going to get quick routes. And he jumps the slant. And we all celebrated. I was angry because I was like, what if he went straight? But he didn't <laughs> because Ed is smarter than me and all of us together. So how do we even start going about trying to possibly measure anticipation or judgment calls or a player's decision-making abilities? I think, so what comes to mind for me is like, one of the things that we have, that you've already started to do is being able to group passing concepts, <coughs> excuse me, group passing concepts, not necessarily based on a formation, but based on uh, where the receivers end up, right? And so you can run, sorry, go ahead. No, 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 right. So you can go, the way that I would start to think about building something for anticipation is find all of the plays that look similar and then have the similar coverages. And then you find where the particular player is who made that play. And like the average player, when you're in cover one and you get a trips kind of double over concept, the average safety or strong safety, I think is what Matthew was playing in that situation, the average strong safety is in this position at this time. He is here at this time and then he is here at that time. And to be able to kind of figure out if there are discrepancies in that for particular players, that would be like my very amateur way of trying to think of how to, to um, figure out anticipation. And then when they like completely throw out the rules, like that cover one concept where you're like, oh, man to man to man, this is all man. But then he throws, he throws away the rules but makes a play is like anticipation to me.
It's almost like if you're setting an expectation right. for where a standard DB safety would be in that situation, and then how that changes based on, on the plays like we showed with Matthew. Right, you just, you know, over average, below average right, exactly. is, is the metric right. somehow. How do you establish that average expectation is the question. And um, the, we, can, we can detect similar plays, like similar defenses, similar pass concepts, um, but sometimes they're, they're, they're all kind of unique, so it's hard to, um, I think it would be a difficult thing, not impossible, but very difficult to kind of establish that sort of baseline. I mean, again, though, going back to, okay, we, we can identify the coverage, we can identify the role. Um, it looked to me in that first clip like he was, they rotated to single high, and then he had like a robber kind of mm -hmm. thing, which you have a lot of freedom in, and you can freelance like that. The second one was completely off the, the playbook, yeah. you know, outside the playbook. But um, so we could, we could say, like, you should be here in this situation, but you're over here. And so is that over here a good thing or a bad thing? And that could be that could be the, the that is funny. Just thinking about that, combining that with the play where the corner was wrong, it's almost like those things would, if we were able to put together some way to find uh, anticipation, those things might come up as similar. But the difference is, on one play, the play is successful; on another play, the play has failed because it's a, it's the same concept. Is you're not where you're supposed to be in this route concept with this coverage. But if you're not where you're supposed to be and you happen to make a play. We'd be, so this is how me and Brian work. I come up with crazy <laughs> ideas. He looks, he has a look of consternation and stress. Like, it's gonna be hard. <laughs> and then he figures it out in like a week. <laughs> I, think, I think anticipation can involve plays where the player is where he's supposed to be. But I guess I think of anticipation as almost kind of the precursor to reaction time. Mm -hmm. So like yeah. for, Sorry, I'm going to talk about safeties, but like, how early does a safety start to break on a route to like the outside hash? Like, how, how, like, as the ball is leaving the quarterback's hand, is it just when the quarterback turns and is looking at that guy? Uh, and so, trying to mark kind of like how far into the play does the defender start to move to where the ball is going to go? I think in safeties, I don't hate safeties. I love them. They're good. They're, they're <laughs> part of the family. I played safety a little bit, um, but I think to go back to corners. Richard Sherman is the guy who does that really well. One of the, the clips that you guys sent that we didn't use necessarily was against the Browns, and he rerouted his guy, and the guy starts running a vertical route, and Richard Sherman undercuts it and looks back and starts to prepare to catch the ball before the quarterback throws it. And like the, it's something about, in that situation, it was a single receiver side, trips away, quarterback under. He's in press, and he's like head up in press. He's not leveraged to either side. So it gives the receiver a two-way go, which is something most coaches would tell you not to do. But I think Richard's doing that because it eliminates routes. If, the, if you let the receiver choose which way to go, if he's going to run a deep route or outside breaking route, he's going to take the outside. If he's going to run a shorter route, especially on single receiver side or inside breaking route, he's not going to go inside to then go back outside. So he did that, and I think Richard at that point was like, all right, I know this team likes to run skinny posts on the backside of three by one if you're in press. If they go outside, it's gonna be fade. So he breaks underneath. He, they end up, um, I think it was Mayfield, ends up just overthrowing the ball rather than throwing it right, right to Richard Sherman. But you saw him snap the ball, he looked to the left to like occupy the safety, then he turned back to throw, and Richard Sherman's standing where he's supposed to be before the, court, before the receiver breaks and before he throws the ball. And that's just all about anticipation. And then he just throws it away, which 
it's frustrating as a corner because you don't get any love for that. No one, no one, they just say, oh, Baker Mayfield, he's so inaccurate when actually you're like, ooh, don't get me started. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> when in actuality, Baker did the best possible thing in that situation. Well, not if, not if you're the cornerback. Cool. 100%. The best possible Completion thing. Completion percentage to the sideline. <laughs> like, yeah, so uh, that's really interesting. Like, uh, so like pass denial. Right, like um, yeah. in basketball, the best defense is like, hey, just lock on and just don't let them get the ball. Don't let their best player ever get the ball. And if you, it, you, you know, you're not going to get any interceptions. You're not going to make right. any tackles or whatever. But and it's very, very hard to detect um, statistically, right? Cause, like you started off uh, the introduction talking about how statistic, like, box score statistics ignore great play by by defenders because if you never run at me right. or you never throw at me. I'm, you're not even sure if I played in the game. Right. The stats you talked about on the earlier panel you did about uh, creating sacks for defensive linemen. It's a similar thing for this is where the D lineman who gets the sack is not always the one who's created the pressure. Sometimes an interior lineman has flushed someone out and he doesn't get any, um, he doesn't necessarily get credit for that because the defensive end is out there to get the, the, um, the sack. But, right, like you put air, yeah. you know, you make the quarterback put air under the ball and that, that right. lets the safety get the... And I mean, I don't want to make it a Richard Sherman seminar, but on the other side of that, when, when, air, when uh, anticipation goes bad and keeping it real goes wrong, potentially, Richard Sherman in the, he, I think it was Sammy Watkins in the Super Bowl caught that, was it, no, it was Miko Hartman who caught that deep one on Richard Sherman in the Super Bowl. And I watched that play over and over, and it's, that's exactly, he did the exact same thing that he did in the Browns play, and he did a couple weeks earlier to get an interception where he's head up, he lets um, Miko um, choose which side to go to, he goes inside, and Richard switches hips because he assumes it's an inside breaking route, but he ran an inside, an inside release fade, and it wasn't because he was faster, even though he is faster, but that wasn't the reason. It's because Sherman, they anticipated that Sherman would do that, and... They beat him there, so that's the life of a corner sometimes. All right, so let's uh, move on to a couple questions from the audience. So uh, here's a good one. Uh, how are players like Lamar Jackson changing these higher-level football strategies? And uh, maybe I'll just add, how would they change kind of how you've talked through um, trying to measure some of these things about uh, def defending the pass? Well, one of the first things we saw when we had the pass coverage uh, classifications is that Baltimore gets cover three, single high, safety, uh, or you know, man one almost all the time, or much higher than any other team. And that's because you need the extra uh, tackler in the box to contain their, not just Lamar, but the, the entire run game. And that, that entire run game is also a function of kind of the threat of Lamar as well. So um, right, right off the bat, we could detect like, okay, he's, he's forcing defenses to become very predictable for him as a passer. So his, his running ability really does, even if he doesn't run, makes the passing game easier for him. And so you, you, you can see a very, very tangible, you know, run sets up the pass kind of thing. And it's true, and we, we can see that. Um, but, uh, you know, that's just one way we can detect it. And, um, you know, you, you have to have, you don't want to play man-to-man -man against him either because you have your back, back turn, and he's going to scramble for, you know, 90 yards uh, if, if all the DBs have their, their backs turned, and there might be only be one or two tacklers who, who are going to be able to uh, get an angle on him. That was the coolest part for me uh, with Lamar Jackson using the, the pass coverage stats this year is that when he scrambled, we were able to tell 
how much more successful he was when he scrambled against man. It was at some at one point in the season he was averaging like 13 yards per scramble when when defenses played man and, and he took off and ran, which is which is great that we can be able to tell that because he's dropping back to pass and we, we have all the uh, all the coverage metrics there. Even if he doesn't break the line of scrimmage, he's changing like the point from which he's throwing if he breaks the pocket, and that throws the geometry of a lot of defenses off. And so when we're talking about how to evaluate a DB, it might be worth thinking about, like, do we want to evaluate how this player plays when we're within the structure of the play, as it's been called? And then if the, that structure breaks down because the quarterback broke the pocket and now it's a scramble drill, like, how, do, how well does this guy play in those situations? All right, um, another question. So there's been a ton of progress um, using data and analytics in sports uh, and, other and other industries also. Do you think other industries have been faster or slower to learn or adapt um, versus sports? And we could even maybe compare across sports to football versus other sports. Yeah. Uh, well, within sports, I mean, there's sort of a hierarchy of sports in terms of how easy they are to analyze. And you, know, you might start with uh, baseball as the easiest, and then you get your, your probably your soccers, basketballs, hockeys, and then football. Football is chaos. They call it the ultimate team sport for a reason. I think I'm repeating myself from this morning. <laughs> but there's all these interactions. You know, but what the safety does is actually affects what the fullback might be doing on a play. And, and there could be 30 yards apart. And so um, you know, the, the player tracking is what's helping us start to kind of isolate the contributions of a single player. I mean, as far as businesses go, the, the important thing is having some sort of, you know, they've always had dollars to sort of measure their output and their productivity. And, um, but they face the exact same problems that we do as football analysts. It's like, how do you, how do you isolate the contribution of a single you know, employee or producer you know, in certain situations like salesmen, you can isolate, you know, their, their sales, right? So you can directly reward them. But you know, collaborative teams, it's a very, very difficult problem, and football faces the same problem. I think in, I agree with kind of when you're thinking about, like, within a firm and trying to measure the productivity of an employee. But a lot of companies have been doing really effective customer segmentation for a really long time, where, like, everyone gets these micro-targeted ads now. And that has a lot to do with companies being very data-driven and how they're trying to get their message to very, very specific people. So instead of coming and uh, asking to have an ad that someone like Brian Burke might like, it's like, no, I want Brian Burke to see this ad, not the 100 other people that have a lot of in common. Well, there's a couple of us. <laughs> One or two. <laughs> there's, there's another Brian Burke out yeah. there. All right. Um, so, Dominique, would any of this data have helped you during your, during your playing days? Absolutely. I mean, I, I think this is, like I mentioned earlier, it's the same. The things that we're able to, to find now is the same stuff I was looking for. I just was looking for it by charting stuff in a notebook with my, with my pen, and I have to watch a play six times to get, be able to understand what everyone is doing. Now I can understand what everyone is doing across thousands of plays in a matter of seconds. So absolutely, it would have made things so much easier if that was available. I'm getting sad. <laughs> that would have been nice. So much more money. <laughs> All right, well, uh, we're about out of time, so that's a wrap. Uh, thank you all for coming and joining us for this discussion. And uh... thank you.
This recording is the property of 42 Analytics and may not be published, broadcast, rewritten, or redistributed without the express written consent of 42 Analytics. Any opinions expressed by panelists are their own and do not represent the beliefs of the conference, 42 Analytics, or the MIT Sloan School of Management. 42 Analytics Educational, Inc. reserves all rights in the content.